for there at least, um, stopped right at the garage door. Uh, no flooding or damage at all, thankfully. Dorothy and family emailed that they didn't flood either. Ann and Stephen were surrounded by water a few days but didn't flood and stayed there. Said, thanks everyone for their prayers and love to all Jocelyn. So that was good news that they had all been spared and no damage to anybody as horrible as that was and is still uh, in the Houston area. So I was glad to hear that. I guess I'll update the sick list a little bit. Happy to see Al Terry sitting here among us and giving the opening prayer. He had a long vacation from that, so put him right back to work. But uh, it's good to have him back. He wanted to be rehabilitated from that broken hip in time to get back for the feast, and so he got back a few weeks early and can get settled in. So good to have Al back home. And uh, Nelson's not here again today. He uh, was feeling a lot better if one of his daughters is visiting from Florida. And uh, he was feeling a little better and doing a little better. And uh, apparently then he went to Zion to be a tour guide for his daughter and grandchildren. And then they went to Bryce and did the same. And uh, now he's back in bed. <laughs> so uh, that's what we tend to do, though, don't we? We get to feel a little better and we can't stand laying around. But he may have to take some time to rehab that arm and shoulder before he's able to, to do much. So he's been up and down and is down at the moment. So hopefully he'll be doing better here pretty quickly. <clears throat> We're less than three weeks from the Feast of Trumpets now. Uh, be here before you know it. So I'm looking forward to that. I uh, I made up the schedule of services for the feast, and uh, we do have some free afternoons. So if you have any suggestions for any particular activities you think we might uh, want to do, uh, let us know. We used to have four-wheeler trips and such when we had more younger people, and now I think most of us are too old to even get on one, so that's kind of out for this crowd, but uh, so I, we can't do the rigorous things we did. Maybe we need to play dominoes or something, <laughs> or just sit around, talk, and eat. That's what old people do. <clears throat> anyway, the feast will be here quickly, so if you do have any thoughts or suggestions, uh Pass them along. Last week I went through uh, Ezekiel 4 and showed, I think, some very important time, end time meaning for uh, Ezekiel laying on his side 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah, a total of 430 days. And uh, just as a brief review, that's the same amount of time to the day that they were in Mitzrayim or Egypt. And the circumstances, however, were different. And this is indeed an end-time prophecy, being here in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Mitzrayim and the 430 were way in the past. And nothing like what Ezekiel described here has happened to the whole of Israel and Judah since. So it has to be an end-time prophecy, 
And I think it, and he said each year, each day for a year, so it's a prophecy that spans 430 years. So if that has to do with the end time, it's something that had to have started a long, long time ago for it to be an end time prophecy for today. And we'll see very clearly that it is for today. <coughs> now the difference that I came to see last Sabbath was that when that 4.30 started, when Jacob went into Mitzrayim to be with Joseph and to be delivered from the trouble he was in, in the drought, uh, they were going basically from freedom into what turned out to be slavery. And they stayed in slavery for 430 years altogether. The first few years weren't slavery, but, I mean, in that condition in Mitzrayim, and the whole time period was 430 years. Then they came out on Passover uh, to the self-same day as Exodus tells us. So they went in, and while they were there, became captives... And when they came out of Mitzrayim, it was to freedom in the desert, being led by God with a great deliverance. So it was 430 years, but it's different than the end time fulfillment. 430 years ago, I do believe at this point, uh, we were allowed, as Ephraimites and Israelites of perhaps a few other tribes, to come to this land. And we came uh, primarily because of certain trouble within England, even as Jacob was having trouble. And they wanted to escape the trouble there with the king. So they were granted freedom to come to this country. Well, they weren't granted freedom. They just took off <laughs> and came here. Uh, and now, 430 years later, uh, we are about to go into captivity. So... Mitzrayim was going into a captivity. At the end of 400 years, 30 years, they came out of captivity. Here, we were given 430 years of freedom in this land, and now we are about to go into captivity. So it's just a reversal. Same amount of time, but a reversal of the fortunes. Okay? Now, in referencing 430 years, I have... Uh, used uh, Roanoke, the Roanoke Colony in 1587 as the starting point. I think I referred to it as 1587 at the beginning of the sermon, and then somehow I lapsed to 1585, for which I received grief right after the sermon, and by email or text even after that. Uh, I, I do make mistakes like that. They did start a colony in Roanoke in 1585, however it failed. So they reestablished it in 1587, and the historians believe that there is a very, very good chance that that colony survived. Uh, it was established on what is today known as Roanoke Island, which is on the outer bank uh, of the coast of Virginia and North, well, North Carolina actually was where it was. And uh, that area is subject to uh, terrible destruction from hurricanes and that type of thing because it is on the Outer Bank where a hurricane first hits. 
So they may have not felt secure there, or maybe they weren't able to uh, provide enough food there. But the indication is that they may have uh, teamed up with some Indians and moved inland. So, uh, looking at the years and where we are today as a nation, it would appear that God began counting that 430 from that second Roanoke uh, establishment in 1587, which would mean that the 430 ended July 22nd of this year. We're now in August, almost, well, we're done, no, we're now in September. <laughs> August is done now. Uh, so, it may be that a time for change has arrived. Let's go back to Ezekiel 4 here for a moment, and uh, let's see, I demonstrated what I'm talking about here. It was as if the trouble that would come on Israel, and particularly Ephraim here, and Judah, uh, would commence after 430 years. Now go to verse 13, because he's talking about Ezekiel eating only so much food and drinking so much water, and it was picturing a time of famine, a time of drought. He said in verse 13, And the Lord said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. So immediately, uh, upon giving instructions here, at the end of that 430 years, they will be driven out among the Gentile nations and eat defiled bread, even as he was told to eat defiled bread as a type. God showed some mercy and let him use cow dung instead of human dung to cook his food on. But uh, still, I prefer wood even over cow dung to cook my food. Then he said in verse 16, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment, with trouble, that they may want bread and water and be astonished one with another and consume away for their iniquity. So, a time of drought and famine and of people dying and being consumed away because of their iniquity. So this is a pronouncement of trouble that will come upon Israel at the end of that 430 years. Now, is it from 1587 until 2017? Uh, I think there's a very, very good chance that is the case. If you fast forward to 1607, uh, where they recognize in history that the pilgrims came and stayed, uh, that puts us further into the future than you and I or most of us are going to live anyway, even as a natural human being. So it would appear, with events occurring the way they are, that he's referring to Roanoke. Now let's establish here for a moment that this is indeed an end-time prophecy. I think I reviewed in Acts 7, uh, where Stephen was giving his sermon there, how God would give the promised land and the land that they stood on when he was giving that sermon to Israel. 
And he said they were still there, but it would be given to us. Well, if they were there then, in the promised land, when he gave that sermon, it had to somehow then be given back to them. Now, let's go back to Genesis 49 and see what our forefathers had to say. Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called to his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So Jacob was looking way beyond those sons that were alive at that time toward the last days. He had been given insight. Where did he get it? Let's go back to chapter 48. Uh, it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Your father is sick, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, mentioned in birth order there. So he took his sons before his father, uh, uh, Jacob, and one told Jacob and said, Behold, your son Joseph comes to you, and Israel strengthens him, himself and sat upon the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the uh, land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people. They, they weren't at that time. And will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. So where they were when this was said is the land that would be given as an everlasting possession. Now where was that? Now, you remember the story. I'm not going to take it all of it for the sake of time, but uh, Jacob took his hands and laid them opposite of birth order on Ephraim and Manasseh. Put his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left on Manasseh's. And Joseph tried to straighten it out. And uh, Jacob said, no, this is the way it's going to be. Verse 17. Uh, Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and it displeased him. So he was going to get his dad straightened out. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. This is the firstborn. His father refused and said, I know it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen him grow up. I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. We have 50 states. Uh, they were started out as nations, actually. Uh, but let's go, since we saw in verse 1 of chapter 49 that this is a latter-day prophecy. And in 48, the primary blessing is not given to all the sons. It's given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Jeremiah 31 says that God reversed the birth order, and he says there that Ephraim is my firstborn. So what Jacob did there was according to God's will, and he put Ephraim as the one who would receive the blessing of the firstborn. The blessing of the firstborn is that that firstborn son, let's say you had ten kids. Instead of ten portions of inheritance, there would be eleven. And the firstborn son would get two of those. So 
Ephraim then was to receive a double blessing. And Jacob says here in chapter 49, verse 1, that this is a prophecy for the end time, okay? Let's go over and read what it says about Ephraim, or about, actually, about uh, Joseph and Ephraim together. In verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Now, you remember Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8, which says that the promised land would have lots of water, rivers and lakes and water. It would have iron and brass that you could dig from the ground. It would have, in summation, everything you need. That the promised land would have everything you need, and that included gold and silver. That country in the Middle East has very little water. It has no gold and no silver and no iron. It does not fit at all. Now, let's see what Joseph would have. It would be like a, well, a, a fruitful bough by a well. Well, there's lots of water. The arches, archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength. Now, which of the sons here of Joseph had the double blessing? Britain was great in its time and had colonies around the world, but it became diminished. And it never had the kind of blessings that North America, Canada and the U.S. have had primarily the United States, in terms of becoming a multitude of people and so on. And let's see here that Joseph was shot at, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hand were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Look at World War I. Look at World War II. And who prevailed? And who caused us to prevail. Was it Britain? No, Britain was about to be overrun. If the United States, Ephraim, had not gotten involved, Britain would have been defeated. Well, God gave us strength uh, to win World War I and World War II. So it fits this prophecy precisely, but it was Ephraim that took the lead there, not Manasseh. Britain is the older of the brothers, was there before this country was ever established. So he was older, but he didn't get the birthright. Ephraim, the United States did. Uh, so he would be strong because God would give the strength. Well, God has removed that now, and we've won our last war. He says, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, Christ is going to come to the promised land and be there with his people, according to Zechariah 2. The stone of Israel is Christ. Even by the God of your Father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have prevailed above his blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. 
They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So the greatest blessings of all Israel would come on Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Ephraim would get a double portion. And we have had more natural resources, more blessings than Britain overall. And we also were the ones who prevailed in war when Britain would not have. So Ephraim is the one who's received the greatest end-time blessings. A lot of people see that the United States is in trouble, but they fail to recognize who we are. And since they don't know who we are, they don't know how to apply the prophecies to this nation. Some of them have concluded correctly that the United States is the present leader of the Babylonian satanic system, and that is true. But they don't understand that Babylon has over, overcome and uh, become the leader of Israel, and especially of Ephraim. So this is an end-time prophecy, no doubt, about the latter days and who would receive the greatest blessings. And that has been this country. So when he then says here, uh, of the nations of Israel and Judah, that they will go into famine and pestilence, he's talking about now, and he's talking about 430 years after uh, we were established and given opportunities to come to this land. That's the only period of time you can even consider is the present time. And we're at the end of that, or very, very near the end of that. I was going to go into Hosea a little bit, because the book is primarily about Ephraim. And it is the first book of the Minor Prophets. When I went through the Minor Prophets back in 97, 98-ish, it had become very clear that the prophecy was first aimed at the church spiritual Israel. But those prophecies have been pretty much fulfilled now in the church with the destruction that has occurred. And it is about to occur upon the nations, as I said even back then, that the trouble with the nation would come after the trouble with the church. So the church is almost destroyed at this point, and the nation is about to be. So we've moved forward a lot in prophecy since I gave that first minor prophet series. So it occurred to me this morning, I've been urged by some over the last some years to go back through the Minor Prophets, but this morning I thought about it some, and I I may just do that. Uh, Still some emphasis, of course, on how it applies to the church, because it still does, and those events are still happening, but maybe with more emphasis on what is about to happen to the physical nation, because that's coming up next, and it could start very soon. Now, if it was at the end of 430 years that the trouble started, we might not need look any further than Hurricane Harvey as a beginning. There is a certain amount of famine, a certain amount of lack of water, and so on already, and that whole thing may escalate across the nation. Who knows? But I heard price gouging like three, four dollar little bottled water package was selling for $42 down there. You know, they're 
pleading for help to help flood victims, and yet those who were on the ground, Houstonites, if you will, were gouging them. Trying to make obscene profits off of people who had lost, many of them, everything. Now, this thing could cause a great deal of economic trouble for the United States. Uh, the price of oil and gas will probably skyrocket. Uh, the infrastructure rebuilding there, I doubt if Houston, considering where we are and what's about to happen in this country, will ever be rebuilt. Even under so-called normal times, it would take years. Under the conditions that we're moving into now, I doubt it will ever get done. So it is a beginning of trouble. Now, is this the first hurricane we ever had? No. Uh, it may be significant in, in that it hit an area of our country that is economically important to us, and the fourth largest city as well, uh, in terms of oil and gas. Uh, it may break some insurance companies and some banks, uh, so the, the ripples from that may be very important uh, moving on. So let's go, uh, instead of going to Hosea, I do want to, for a moment, and I mentioned this a little bit uh, fairly recently, but I'd like to go into uh, Amos, because here is a specific prophecy that seems to fit, or could fit, uh, right now. So let's, let's uh, at least dive into the minor prophets this much, even though our main focus is Ezekiel at the moment. Uh, here, I'll start in chapter 7. I mentioned some things in chapter 8 a couple weeks ago, I think it was. But I want to go back a little more since I reviewed this and uh, look at chapter 7. Now, he's talking here about destruction coming on the nation. And he says, Thus has the eternal God showed to me, Behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So, here... The grasshopper is symbolic of trouble, something that would destroy the crop, something that would, make, would impact the food uh, process. And he says it was the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growths. Now, in the springtime, I think I explained a little bit when we talked about the, the summer, that you have several, let, let's use alfalfa. In the spring, it starts growing, and it grows high enough that they have a cutting. And then they water it, and they cut again. And they water it, and they cut again. Now, in the southern areas of the United States, there are places they can get four cuttings in a summer. More common is three, and as further north you go, in some cases, it's only two cuttings. Because there is the summer short enough that they don't have time to get that many cuttings in. So, he's talking here about... Uh, grass or hay or whatever that they were growing at that time and that trouble would begin at the time of the latter growth after the king's mowings. So if the king had these crops and they had mowed and they'd grown and he'd mowed again and maybe mowed again, then there comes a point where you can't have enough growth to cut it again. It will grow some. And here, the practice is, when you have that latter growth, after all the mowings are done, 
is they'll turn sheep or cattle in to let them graze whatever grows after their last cutting. That's common practice. So here he's talking about end of summer, early fall, when the growing has stopped and no more cuttings going on. It came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, so they had turned the animals in after the last cutting, and they were eating the grass that was still there. Then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. Now this could apply to the church, because it fell apart for the end of Herbert Armstrong's life and right after, but it also will apply to this nation which is about to be destroyed. 90%, over 90% actually, as we'll see in Ezekiel, of our population is, is going to die. That is the goal of Satan. Well, his is to get rid of all of us, but the globalists want to get rid of 90%. And indeed, that is what God says will happen. So, the grasshoppers come. The, the trouble begins in the summer, early fall here, when they've turned the cattle in to eat what's left of the grass. And then he says, how is Jacob going to arise? He's being destroyed by these grasshoppers and by the things that he talks about here. The Eternal repented for this. It shall not be, says the Eternal. Uh, they will not be totally destroyed. Thus says the eternal God, show to me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up apart. Then said I, O Lord God, see, he's, he's being given this message, and he sees the destruction that God is going to bring. Cease, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. So he's going to say, you've almost destroyed us. Now we're going to read soon in Ezekiel where a man died, which I referred to. And Ezekiel said the same thing. Are we all going to die? <laughs> Who's going to save us? It says the eternal repented for this. This also shall not be. I'm not going to destroy you completely. So he showed me a plumb line. That's how you measure uprightness. And he said, what do you see? He said, a plumb line. Uh, and God said, I'll set a plumb line. That's a standard. It measures. Uh, in the midst of the people, Israel, I will not again pass. I will not again pass by them anymore. So, at the time of the grazing after the last cut, he says, "I'm not going to pass by them anymore. I'm going to punish them." And then he ultimately will show in many scriptures that he is going to save them from total annihilation. That he will relent before we are destroyed completely. But over 90% will go. And then desolation will come. So I wanted to indicate here that this seems to be toward the end of summer, early fall, when that condition occurs that is mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. So let's go to verse eight, or chapter 8 then and review this as well, because it may very well tie in with where we are right now, very possible the end of 430 years since the Roanoke Colony was established, and this punishment is due to start. Thus is the eternal God showed to me, <clears throat> Behold, a basket of summer fruit. 
Now, through the summer, things grow. Toward the end of summer, the harvest comes. Now, some garden things produce a little early if you plant early carrots or something, but the bulk of the harvest comes in late summer, early fall. This is summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Eternal to me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. So, God could have showed him spring barley harvest. He could have shown him snowball uh, reaping in January or something. But no, he shows end of summer. And he says, I will not pass by them anymore. In other words, the trouble is coming. And I have to assume from that that whenever this prophecy is fulfilled, it's going to be at the end of summer. Okay? This may be the year. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. That probably means they're going to be absolutely dumbfounded and sad and upset and frustrated. So they don't have anything to say. They'll be like they're in a trance almost. In shock when this happens. Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. What is big business doing? Swallowing up the needy, making the land to fail. Uh, They have this new world order and shadow government that we have in this country today, and the globalists in other countries are destroying this country as fast as they possibly can. And they are doing it with great emphasis on the economy. And you see articles fairly often in TV uh, information that says that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And we have what they call now the elite 1%. And the middle class is being destroyed and made poor. This is happening right now in our country. Uh, saying, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, cheating in other words, and falsifying the balances by deceit, stealing from the people. And perhaps it is instructive here that this summit eclipse across the whole country, which is rare, it happens, But this is one, apparently, that may fit this scripture. Uh, Even some Jews and a very very few others made a connection here. And they don't know who we are as a people. But we had a slight distraction there. And then they went right back to what? Trying to take everything away from the people. Let's, Let's get this out of the way and move on with it. So then we have a big hurricane, and what do they do? They start gouging the people. Gas prices, water prices, everything. Right after this new moon. Well, we'll see how it ties in here in a few verses. The Eternal is sworn by the Exodus. He says, I tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein. So what is about to occur is going to cause the whole land to mourn. Not just Houston, not just here and there, but the whole land. And it shall rise up holy as a flood. Did you get that? Did we just have a flood right after July 
22nd, after the 430 years ended, it began as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. So he says this is going to be a big flood. Uh, they're calling what happened in Houston a 500-year storm now. Uh, record rainfalls. So it's, uh, it, it is a major thing that occurs. And now there's another Hurricane Irma coming right behind it, and they don't know whether it's going to hit the Gulf or going to hit the northeast coast. But it's, they are projecting it may be a Category 5 by the time it gets here. Even stronger than Harvey was a four. So, do we see something starting here? Hang on. Uh, we'll find out, won't we? Again, it isn't the first hurricane that ever hit the country. But it's the first one that came after this new moon that passed across the land. And it is worse in the damage that it did. They're saying it is either the first or the second worst natural disaster this country has ever faced. That's the implication. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the eternal God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Turns out they had clear weather almost all the way, if not all the way across the country at the noon hour when that eclipse went from Oregon to South Carolina right across the middle of the country in the middle of the day, and it became dark in the middle of the day. Is this a specific prophecy or what? I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Your whole culture is going to be uprooted when this occurs. I'll bring sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. The famine of the Word of God. Are the churches of God about to be dried up where people have gone as a refuge from the destruction of worldwide? And is there only one place then that they will go to hear the Word of God expounded? I believe that is the case. So, not only the destruction of the nation, but what little understanding of true gospel, the waters of Christ is also going to be dried up when this happens. Okay? So are we there? I think there's a very, very good chance of that. I'm not going to go out necessarily on a limb and start making specific prophecies. But, boy, this sure looks like it fits. And it looks like it may have started indeed at the end of 430 years, as Ezekiel says. Now, he says at the end of that 4.30, we've already read in verse 13 and verse 16 and 17, that when the 3.90, or I mean the 4.30 was finished, that these things would begin. So, again, Roanoke, July 22nd, is when the colony was established that probably survived in 19, or 1587, and that is 430 years uh, ago as of July 22nd this year, and already we're seeing this eclipse, and we've seen a flood, and we, I think, are going to see more, because I don't think there's going to be any more delay. Now let's go to Ezekiel 5, because God extends what He says is going to happen to this nation. 
Now, he's talking about here. This is the promised land that God gave that has the greatest blessings on earth, and this is Ephraim that had the double portion. So he said, these things would happen in the land that I gave you. Well, what land did he give us 430 years ago? This land. So these are the latter days, and we have to be in the land that God promised Abram and that Jacob told Joseph he would inherit. And they were in it at that time. So they were here. Just as we are here, and the 430 cannot apply to any nation but this nation, can it? Go back 430 years in the history of England. Go back in the history of Spain, or Brazil, or China, and you won't find a new people coming into a new land, and 430 years later, being on the verge of total collapse and destruction. This is the only place that it could apply. So it has to be the promised land, and it has to be where our forefathers were when those promises were made, because this is where we have become a multitude of nations, 50 nation-states gathered together under a federal government that we somehow allowed. So let's go into chapter 5, where he's already said here, at the end of that 430, trouble would start, famine and all. They're not all going to occur in one day. It'll be over a period of several years. Now let's go to chapter 5. You, son of man, take a sharp knife, uh, take you a barber's razor, barber's razor is pretty sharp, and cause it to pass upon your head and upon your beard. Now, he probably had not shaved, or, or well, he probably wore a beard anyway, but he hadn't had his hair cut probably in 430 days. So, it was probably getting pretty long. So, then take you balances to weigh and divide the hair. So, cut all his hair and all his beard off. And what does he do with the hair? He was to divide it into three parts. You shall burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of your siege are fulfilled. So this is something that was to happen immediately after the 430 days, right? God tells us there will be no more delay. He will no longer pass by us there in Amos 7. And uh, it's not a resounding of the hills again. I think he says somewhere there in Hosea or, or Amos. I don't remember. I read it this morning. Uh, it's not like an echo. This time it's real. It's going to happen. So, immediately after the 430, he's told, cut your hair in three pieces when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And you shall take a third part and smite about it with a knife. A third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. You shall take also thereof a few in number and bind them in your skirts. Now, we already read that uh, they would be scattered among the Gentiles. All right, let's look at this. The first third you take and smite with a knife. If you're smitten with a knife, you die. So it's talking about military action or the sword 
and death. Uh, it will include civil war and death. It will include, finally, uh, being taken over by the Assyrian and total destruction, as other scriptures show. A third part, scatter in the wind. Scattered among the Gentiles, right? And a sword after them. They'll continue to be killed. Uh, you shall also take there of a few in number and bind them in the... Let's see. I'm missing something here. Oh, you'll burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city. Uh, fire representing, in this context, famine and pestilence, which he's already mentioned. So a third will die of famine and pestilence. A third will die of the sword. And a third will be scattered among the Gentiles as slaves. He said, you shall also take there of a few in number and bind them in your skirts. So, roughly a third, a third, and a third, but he was to save some back. Now, we find in other places that it's roughly 10% was saved back. Then take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire, for thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. So a third, a third, and a third with ten percent back, and then you take some of them and even cast them into trouble. So it's, at that point, a little less than ten percent that survive. Thus says the eternal God, this is Jerusalem. So let's not make any mistake about this. This is about the people of Israel whose capital was Jerusalem at the time. <coughs> I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are around about her. So we, in that sense, are surrounded by all the Gentile nations, are we not? From the east coast and off the west coast and to the south. Uh, and she has changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations, and my statutes more than the countries that are round about her. For they have refused my judgments and my statutes, and they have not walked in them. They were exposed to them. When the first colonies were established here, there were a lot of Sabbath keepers and feast keepers among them. So they had knowledge of God, and some of them tried to do it, and then they were shouted down by others who did not want to do that and immediately began to persecute those who would obey God's laws. And that happened right away after they got here. And there, is, there are several different scriptures. One right here in Ezekiel, it says in chapter 16, he says, you, you look like Hittites and Amorites to me. I can't tell the difference. You don't look like Israelites. You're worse than the nations. He says, you're not only a whore at the end of that chapter. He says, you're paying your lovers. Our foreign aid and all that, we're, we're paying for our lovers. So it's all about this country. And he says, we are worse than the Gentiles around us. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you multiply, multiplied more than the nations that are round about you, and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. We don't even live as by the Gentile, law, Gentile laws as much as, much less God's. 
Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. Remember how we went through Lamentations? and showed how God over and over and over said, I am the one that destroyed the church. I am the one that will destroy the peoples of Israel. Here he says again, I will execute judgments in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. The Gentiles will destroy us, and they will mock us and laugh at us when this destruction comes. This isn't talking about Israel in the Middle East. A, it isn't the promised land. Those few Jews who moved in there only moved in in 1948. The Arabs even say they built that Jerusalem long ago as a facsimile or a type of the original which was here. Where do you find circumcised people? Among the nations of Israel. That's where it was instituted. You don't have it among the Gentiles. Some of the Arabs, I think, still circumcise, but that's because they're the seed of Abraham through a different mother. But that's the only place that circumcision is generally done is in the nations of Israel, Western, Northwestern Europe, America and Canada, and of course, Australia and New Zealand, where the white people went. What movement do we have in this country today? Kill all white people by anybody that has any color but white, and even some white people are killing all white people and saying, let's do it. That's weird, because they're white themselves. But they don't consider you white if you have a different political view than they do. Uh, Hosea even says that Ephraim is a cake not turned. (coughs) Now, they didn't bake cakes in a cake pan like we do our what we call our cakes today. (coughs) They rolled out dough on a flat rock or a a hearth or whatever. And it was more like pancakes. You let it cook on one side, then you flipped it over, so you cook both sides. You do the same thing with an egg or with a hamburger patty or with, with a pancake. You turn it over. If you don't turn it over, it gets black and brown on the bottom and stays white on the top. And it says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. That we have allowed people to come in of different, of, of the Gentile nations, brown and black. So we've become brown and black on the bottom, and white on top, and the brown and black is about to overturn the white that's still on top. And the Gentile nations are going to laugh at us. We see it happening now. It's not just a prophecy of the past that we're looking to somehow see happen. It started happening this summer in this country. Did it not? I will do to you, verse 9, that which I have not done, and whereunto I will not do any more the like because of all your abominations. So this is the final captivity, the final destruction of the peoples of Israel prior to Christ returning. This is the last time. It's been done before, but this is it. Therefore, the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of you, and the sons shall eat their fathers, 
That's pretty extreme famine and drought. And I will execute judgments in you, and the whole remnant of you will I scatter into all the winds. Scattered among the nations. Four, four directions all the way around the earth. We are going to be taken captive, those who survive. Wherefore, as I live, God is swearing on his eternity, says the eternal God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore will I also diminish you, neither shall my eye spare, neither will I have any pity. When Israel went into the captivity the last time, or Judah, Judah and Israel ultimately went into a captivity, <coughs> but they were allowed to return to the promised land where they screwed up. But after the Babylonian captivity, that was the last captivity that the nation went into. So this is talking about the last one, the one that we are about to go into. He scattered into the wind. Now, how did we defile his sanctuary, if it's talking about us, in the Middle East? Now, he's talking from the inside out. His sanctuary is the throne of God, ultimately, the first sanctuary, and where he and his son are. And he had a sanctuary in the promised land. And it was defiled. It is going to be defiled again when the... Uh, Prophecy in Daniel is fulfilled. When Jerusalem is rebuilt and the abomination of desolation is going to be set up, they will defile the sanctuary. But in the meantime, we've defiled this whole promised land, this whole nation. We've polluted the land, we've polluted the air, the water, everything. And we have polluted all God's laws. We're not keeping any of them. And we're aborting and killing millions of babies every year. He said he would give us uh, prosperity, didn't we read back in Genesis 49 of the womb? So he blessed us with reproduction and we became a great nation. And now, we ourselves are killing our own babies. Should God be upset? He gave us this beautiful land to take care of like he gave Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden. And we have spoiled and ruined it. So we've ruined the physical land and we've ruined the culture and the obedience of the people who do not serve the living God at all. <clears throat> so then he explains, A third part of you shall die with the pestilence and with famine. So what I was saying up there, though it isn't real clear in verse 2 and 3, he makes very clear here. A third, well that's the burning, the pestilence and famine, shall be consumed in the midst of you. And a third shall fall by the sword round about you, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds and draw a sword after them. So, there you have it. Those who are dreaming and having thoughts and fantasies about a nuclear blast that will destroy us all, it ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. It says right here how it is going to occur. Conditions will happen which are going to cause famine and pestilence in the land. Now, that could be partly natural disasters, droughts and floods and so on. It could also be di disruption of the economy, because we know in Zephaniah that we're going to have a financial crash, 
And when the finances collapse and the trucks stop running and the tractors stop running, you automatically have famine and pestilence, right? So there are a lot of factors that are about to take place uh, that are going to cause this, but it is not going to be a total destruction of the nation by nuclear war. Even the Gentiles themselves don't want that because, A, we might cause some destruction in their countries, and, B, they want this place. They don't want nuclear winter here. They want to be able to come in and take it over and use it. They already got people coming in here and buying it up by the millions of acres, uh, so they want it preserved. So uh, the elite and the globalists are going to cause things to happen that are going to bring famine and pestilence. Then they are going to they're going to cause civil war too, according to Jeremiah fifty fifty one, before the Assyrian arrives. So we'll be killing ourselves, and we will be without food and water. And weakened, so when the Assyrian comes in, there won't be a whole lot of opposition. UN troops are headed here. In fact, they're already here. Our government has allowed them in. Uh, Jeremiah also indicates that our leaders will sell us out, which they have done. These things aren't prophecies for the future. They're things that have already happened now and are still happening as we speak and are going to get worse until it escalates to the point of verse 12 where over 90% of us are going to be either dead or in captivity, and a sword after those who are in captivity. That is the near future of this country. And it may be starting this summer, end of this summer, early fall, uh, if Amos is referring to this year and the 430 is referring to Roanoke. I don't see how it could be anything else, because 1607 is too late. I think the uh, Jubilee cycle is going to end in 2026 and 27, Christ returning probably in 26 and the millennium starting in 27, beginning of the next 50-year cycle. That seems to be the indication without going through it all again. Said we wouldn't know the day or the hour he would come. Uh, doesn't mean we won't have a pretty good understanding of prophecy and even the year maybe but we won't know precisely, and it's subject perhaps to change. Who knows? But what we're reading here is in the beginning stages, and it's going to get worse day by day, week by week, and month by month. Anything could set it off. We have people now who are already saying in the alternative media that we're already in a civil war. You've got the different Republicans and Democrats and the different names for it, and the different communist societies and so on that are starting to fight in our streets and kill a few here and there. So it's already started on a small scale, and it is going to get worse and worse as the weeks go by. I think we are on time. I think this is it. It appears. How fast it will escalate, we shall see. Anyway, verse 13, then he says, Thus shall my anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted. God is going to say, I am so tired and sick and tired of this, I'm going to do something about it. 
And then he will find a certain amount of comfort in knowing that uh, our people who are so ungodly are not going to be doing ungodly acts anymore. Over 90% ultimately will be dead, and they will not be doing ungodly acts while they're dead. Not going to happen. So God is going to have a certain amount of comfort from the sin that is before His very eyes today. And they shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. God is pretty furious. Now, have we seen it happen to the church? When you spew something out of your mouth, you are sick of it. You don't want it in your stomach or your mouth anymore. And God destroyed the church, just like the prophecies, especially the book of Lamentations, said He would do. So that prophecy is essentially now fulfilled. And the country is about to be destroyed in the same way the church was. Same way. It's going to continue with the church, because most 90% of the church is going to the tribulation and is going to die there. Only 10% of what was the church will be saved out and come to Zion to finish the work of God. That's Scripture, and many Scriptures put together to come up with that picture. So by the time the end of the tribulation comes, a little less than 10% of what is America today, and Israel, the other nations of Israel, will have survived the onslaught of Satan and the Gentiles. Verse 14, Moreover, I will make you waste and a reproach among the nations that are round about in the sight of all that pass by. So, all the Gentile nations are going to rejoice over the destruction of Israel. And that means Ephraim, where we live, Manasseh, our brother, and our other brothers uh, in northwest Europe and scattered around the world where they are. So, the white race is under attack and is essentially going to be destroyed. The whole race. This is a race war. Gentiles against Israel. Make no mistake about it. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt, an instruction and an astonishment to the nations that are round about you. Read Revelation 18 and how they stand in awe that such a great nation is destroyed and cry because their market is cut off. We have made many nations rich by buying their goods. So, it will astonish them that such a great world empire will come to nothing. When I shall execute judgments in you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I the Eternal have spoken it. This cannot be stopped. Jeremiah says, don't even pray for this people. They will not repent. This will happen. When, then, I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine, which shall be for their destruction, and when I, and which I will send to destroy you, and I will increase the famine upon you, and will break your staff of bread. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave you, and pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. It's written in the Word of God. It's promised 
on the very life of God, which we read a little earlier, and it is going to happen, and if the Scriptures we're reading are any indication, it has just started. And it's going to get worse and worse. Just as it started in the church with a ripple here and a ripple there, and it got worse and worse and worse until the church is essentially destroyed. The exact same thing is going to happen to the nations of Israel, including this country. And we are the leader. We are the ones that were given the most blessings. And to whom much is given, much is required. So this nation is the kingpin that the Gentiles have to get out of their way before the times of the Gentiles can really take hold and they can rule the earth under Satan. So brace yourself and talk to God and get as close to God as we possibly can and pray that we be counted worthy to be protected and to escape what is now starting to come down.